If you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, we are um, taking another look at verse 33 and 34 today, especially verse number 34. I'm going to read this to you, Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who will bring against a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes. Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. A few moments ago, as the choir was singing, they had a part in that song just before they went back to the chorus again where there was a very recognizable crescendo. I thought, ooh, that was that almost gave me goosebumps just to hear it go like that. It was so exciting to hear the song. I, I love it when songs do that. When we say the same thing like the chorus a couple of times, but it just needs to be repeated in a more energetic, a louder voice. When we get to verse thirty four, Paul was penning this section for the first time. Do you think he was writing these verses out in a very meek, quiet little way? Do you think that maybe it would do well to give a bit of a crescendo here to verse number 34? After all, look what he said. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes! Rather, who was raised and is now at the right hand of the Father and is making intercession for us. I don't know about you, but that excites me. What an incredible statement Paul has just made. We're going to take our time this morning to look at that passage because that is significant in your Christian life. It is. And we needed a crescendo there. And I'm glad the choir got us started on it today. Heavenly Father, we go into your word right now and there's much for us to learn. But as we look at this passage, may we be very thankful for what we read. And may it excite us to know that this was for us, that Christ has done these things. And may we come away with a greater appreciation for the love you have for us and how secure we are in that love. Help us with our passage today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two questions. We've started this way a couple weeks ago. There are two questions in verse 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And, and who is the one who condemns? And there are answers to both of those. Verse 33, God is the one who justifies. And the other answer today, we will see Christ Jesus is he who died. And the rest of verse number 34. Now, when you step back and look at this passage, understand that Ultimately, these questions about charges and accusations and condemnations all have a common source. We could say, well, it's the world doing this to us, or we could say Satan is the one doing this to us, or a lot of different things we could mark there as the cause for the reason why they're accusing us. But really, directly it goes back to the fact that there is something that separates us from security, and it's called sin. Positionally,
sin not only breaks our fellowship with God, because that is true. Adam would tell you that if he was standing right here. He would say, it didn't take long. We ate of that tree and, whew, boy, we felt the difference right away. He went and hid. Fellowship was broken. Yes, that is true. We read it in Romans 3. We bring up that verse so often. We know it well. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We say, okay. So it not only breaks our fellowship with God, it actually separates us from a relationship with Him. It makes us, according to Romans 5, His enemy. That's a pretty serious statement to make, but it's true. In Scripture, sin does that. We can say positionally, yes, we have a serious problem with sin, don't we? Psychologically, we have a problem with sin, too. Sin leaves us dirty. Sin has an effect on our conscience, doesn't it? Sin makes us feel if you like that word feel, some people do. Some people say, hey, don't say that in a Bible church. All right? Feel. It, helps us, it makes us feel that there's a gap between us and God. We feel that. We, we feel something is really wrong here. Our hearts declare that. Our minds condemn us. We feel spiritually heavy at times. We feel unwanted because of sin. We, we feel as if God were mad at us. You ever felt that way before? That maybe he's going to ignore you today. Or maybe those three flat tires on the way to work was some way of his getting your attention. You never get three flat tires, do you? We say, well, you know, our assurance gets kind of kind of uh, um, wavering <laughs> when we get into sin, don't we? We don't feel right. Psychologically, that's true too. But the fact is this, that sin is so devastating, it leaves no part of man untouched. No part of man is untouched. Uh, there are those who used to believe that, you know, the flesh was separate from the spirit. And they, they came to this conclusion that uh, the flesh was sinful, and the spirit is holy. And so they'd go and sit on poles, and they would hide in caves, and, and they do all they can to prevent the flesh from having any contact with sin. And then there's others who said, no, it doesn't even matter if you sin. So they sinned as they pleased, because they said it had no results anyway, because uh, the deeds of the flesh don't, expect, don't affect the spirit. There's been a lot of philosophies out there not based in Scripture, but they tried to separate the two. But when we read in Scripture that the heart is wicked desperately so, when it says that the conscience can be defiled and it can even be seared, when we read that the mind embraces even the avenues of sin and the soul dies, in other words, what I started with, there isn't a part of man, whether it's his mind, his heart, his emotions, his soul, his body, that's not damaged and affected by sin. Not a part of man. We can't call that simply the sin nature but as I start this way today, it doesn't sound very happy, does it? Oh, Pastor, what a way to start a sermon. Last week we had two questions. This week, or the last couple of weeks, and this week as last week, we're coming up, we're showing the answers 
from verse 33 and verse 34. And these questions and these answers are directly related to the thing that caused our separation in the first place. Sin. Modern culture does not like that word. Sin. Maybe you could say it doesn't understand that word. I mean, after all, they live as if right is wrong and wrong is right. Maybe they're just confused. Scripture actually says that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, and they walk that way. So, we can't look to modern culture to give us the answer, of course. Matter of fact, sometimes you can't even go to the modern church to find the answer. Because there is a, a group out there, especially, who doesn't like to talk about sin. They, they say it's such a negative thing. It, it doesn't correspond to their techniques to make a congregation happy. They want you to be happy when you leave. You think this pastor just wants you sad, huh? Well, here's what I read the other day, and it, it kind of caught my attention. I'm just going to read it to you as I saw it. The title was, Jellyfish Christianity. This little quote came from J.C. Ryle. That's a long time ago, but it's interesting how real this is. Jellyfish, Christ, jellyfish Christianity is a Christianity without bone or muscle or sinew, without any distinct teaching about the atonement or the work of the Spirit or justification or the way of peace with God. But it is a vague, foggy, misty Christianity of which... The only watchwords seem to be, you must be liberal and kind. You must condemn no man's doctrinal view. You must consider everybody is right and nobody is wrong. Is that today? Wow! That's today. That's today. I would like to say that I'm beating a dead horse, but the horse isn't dead yet. It's still there. And it's still going. And so, though we recognize, and listen carefully, we, we recognize the solution is in the death of Christ. That's our solution for sin. We recognize it's true, that the solution is in the death of Christ on our behalf. Here's our problem, more times than not, is that we do not apply the solution. Though we know it to be true, we do not apply it to our actions or to our thinking. Whether we don't really understand, or whether we just don't take it serious, or whether we simply have our doubts, the phrase of Jesus is misunderstood at times. What he said was, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. What's not to understand about that? And yet, practically, you know how it is when we get into a sinful situation. Reading Romans chapter 8 seems like, this is 40 miles away from me. It's like, this isn't where I'm at right now. Why don't I understand God's love today? Why, why is it such a foggy thing for me to understand God's love? Well, sin is your problem, folks. It's our problem. But God has a solution. And that's why I'm taking you into verse 34, especially today, because this is for us to know. And what you know should counter what you feel. 
Sin does bring condemnation, but God is the one who justifies, verse 33 says. God is the one who justifies. We deal with that in depth as we did last week, but here's how I could simply sum it up. Judgment and justification are his department. That's his work. And if he has declared you justified, then you are justified. Right? I mean, what court is going to overrule God? Who has a who has a more authoritative voice than him? And it says here, God is the one who justifies. I love that. I, I can stop and say, that's all I wanted to know. I mean, that's great. That solves my problem. God is the justifier. It's because he's done that through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse number 34 is not a rebuttal. Right, usually in debate form, we have somebody state one thing, and then the other person rebuts that and states the opposite, uh, as if we have one side of the story and then we need the other side of the story. But here's the logic Paul writes in verse 33 and 34. It would be like this. If you take a coin and you write on the one side, God justifies, and you turn it over, it would say, Christ died for you. Both statements come to the same conclusion. And I think that's rather interesting that if there's any way to concrete what he had just said in verse 34, it's in or 33, it's what he says in verse 34. Christ is your Savior. And I underscore that especially because of the works that are defined in verse number 34. That is a powerful answer to the issue of sin. Who accuses? Who condemns? Christ Jesus died. He was raised. He's at the right hand of God. He also intercedes for us. Observe, observe those words, will you? There are four things mentioned here, and they're very important statements, and they're just about as elementary as you can make them. Christ Jesus is he who died. That's number one. Number two, Christ Jesus is he who was raised. Number three, Christ Jesus is he who is at the right hand of God. Number four, Christ Jesus is he who is interceding for us. Four very important things. We're going to work our way through them. But I noticed something very interesting as I looked at this passage. Two of them speak as if past tense. Two of them speak as present tense. The two that are what we would talk about in the sense of past tense, we have the past tense of the verb here in verse 34. He who died, who was raised. Those are past tense concepts for us. In the Greek, they're completed concepts. We call it the aorist tense. The, the fact is they are completed. And that's what what's makes them a fact. Because you don't see any question marks in verse 34 at all after he started to speak about Christ? Is there a question mark as to whether or not he died? Is there a question mark whether or not he rose? No. Those are facts. 
Those are completed actions. They are done. They are facts. And very important facts at that. If there is any reason to, to make these as possible or potential in other, instead of reality, there's a way to write that. Paul did not do that. He wrote them as facts. They're both completed actions. That's the support, even the strength of what we believe. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you're in Romans, just another book. Move toward the back of your book, just another book. 1 Corinthians 15. Now it's back in right around 2011 or 12 that we started in on this passage, 1 Corinthians 15. That was a long time ago. Now we're not going to do the whole chapter. You know, there's 58 verses. But look at the first couple, verse 3 and verse number 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to to the scriptures. The authority not only is in the event being completed, but also it is in the scriptures. It is recorded in God's word. And for Paul to write that on that day to the Corinthians, what he meant by the scriptures was what we have as the Old Testament. Isn't that fascinating? Even the Old Testament confirms the fact not only was Christ to die, but that he was to rise again. It's that concrete in God's word. But this Paul says is of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, I've studied theology quite a long time, to be honest with you. My doctorate degree is in theology. You want to really get bored, study that in depth. Ah, it's like, ah. But it's still a fascinating field to me. This is how I try to picture it. I try to simplify it. And what I think is this, and chapter 15 is perfect for this. If you take all of theology and put it up like a wheel, like an old wagon wheel, and you've got all the spokes representing the different uh, doctrines, the disciplines of our faith, whether we're talking about the Scripture and the truth of Scripture, whether we're talking about the identity of God, theology proper, whether we're talking about Christology, the study of Christ, uh, Soteriology, the study of salvation, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, all those great big words, you know. If we put any, any doctrine as a spoke, the hub is Jesus Christ died, risen again. Because if you pull that out, the whole thing collapses. Every single doctrine, if we had time, I'd do it. Every single doctrine we hold to is also anchored to the death and resurrection of Christ. And the verses show it, and it's such a fascinating thing to do in the New Testament. As you're going through in Paul's teaching, he teaches something, and all of a sudden he says, and the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right in the middle of it. And he says, well, Paul, you sure do like that theme. Well, that's the anchor for it. That's the hub of it all, folks. He says here, it's of first importance. Now, I don't know how to define what part of theology or even what part of Scripture should be first or second. Because that's, to me, they're all first. But if there's a first of the first, this is it. 
This is it. So even before Paul goes into this incredible chapter, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, speaking about our resurrection, our resurrection, based on the resurrection of Christ, he has to lay down the concrete doctrine first, which is Christ died for us according to the Scriptures. And he was buried. He rose again the third day. Now start in verse number 12, and I'll show you how it works. Just a handful of verses, not the whole chapter, but let's just do about eight, eight verses here and you can see it. It says, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How is it possible there be no resurrection if Christ rose? I mean, that's like saying, well, the sun never rises, you know, if you're speaking about the morning, and you're looking out and you see the sun up in the sky. I mean, doesn't it make sense that it had to have gotten there somehow? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. How can you say there's no resurrection? Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So, you take the resurrection out of the head, the whole doctrine of the resurrection of Christ just collapsed. He goes also to say in verse number 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. The pastor doesn't need to be up here. His preaching is empty. I might as well read mattress tags to you or something else. Because it has just as much value. Alright, so that side. Our, our preaching, our evangelism, our speaking of the truth, uh, all those things related to the, the uh, ministry to the saints of God's Word, through God's Word. Might as well collapse that too, if there's no resurrection. He says, not only is your preaching vain, but you believe it. And your faith is vain too. It's empty, just as empty as the word coming your way. If there is no resurrection, then what we're doing here this morning is pointless. Do you see that? It's absolutely pointless. And then he goes on to verse 15. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses. That means I've been lying to you for seven years. All right? And because we testified that God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So, take that whole picture out. Not only are we not truthful, but that even makes God a liar. That means his word is not true. You see what's collapsing around you? Take the resurrection out. In verse number 16, And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. There it says it again. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And by the way, you are still in your sins. Now it gets personal. Because if you're still in your sins, there's no hope for you. There's no hope for you. There's no solution for sin. If there's no death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's reality. And it gets worse. Verse 18, And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The loved ones who knew the Lord, but for the Lord died... They're gone. Doesn't that break your heart to think that? They perished. And we who have hoped in Christ, if we're doing that in this life only, then we are the most pitiful men on this planet. Now that's just a sampling of what I'm trying to express to you. 
That's why Paul would come in such places like this, and he says, I want to talk about your resurrection, but I want you to know that it is just as true and just as solid and just as genuine in every word I want to throw out there as the fact that Jesus died and rose again. That's why we bring that up. When Paul had to talk to the Thessalonians about this in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, I want to show you one more passage. First uh, Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. He's talking to them about a topic that no one's talked about before. He wants to talk to them about the rapture of the church. Now, put it in perspective. At the time Thessalonians was being written, maybe the book of Galatians had been written. I think it had been. But of all your New Testament books, Galatians would have existed. The book of James probably too. Now, if you take the book of James and the book of Galatians and scan all the way through them, how many times do you see references to the rapture of the church? None. None. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, book number three of the New Testament. He didn't have anything else to show them the truth of that passage, except this, and this is the anchor to it. Verse 13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you do not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, see it? Right there! If we believe Jesus died and rose again, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The whole doctrine of the rapture is based on the fact Jesus died and rose again. That's the point. Over and over and over in Scripture, it's like this. I challenge you to dig into the New Testament and look it up. How many times, whatever the statement is, made about our theology, the strength of the argument falls back on the fact that Jesus died and rose again. It's over and over and over. And I thought, why did that have to be that way? And I guess if I was a first century Christian, living under the persecution that they did, living under the fact that they didn't carry a, a Riley study Bible with them, they didn't have scripture to carry in their hands. They couldn't go back to it and find all the support they wanted to. But this one thing they knew. Jesus had died and rose again. That was their assurance over and over and over again. They didn't know a lot sometimes, but they knew enough. That's what I like to see in this passage. Because folks, you know this is true. Don't you? We know it's true. And let me give you the logic of what Paul's doing here, if I haven't say, stated it clear enough. To show the strength of the statement. The statement in Romans 8 is simply this. God loves you, and you are secure in that love. The strength of that statement is based on the fact Jesus died and rose again. If that part is not true, that Jesus died and rose again, then the first part is not true. But since Jesus did die and rise again, 
What's it say about his love for you? It is true, folks. Notice what it's based on. It's not based on you. It's not based on Mondays. It's not based on how well you applied yourself to studying God's Word, even though we should. Whether or not you had your devotions this morning. Whether or not you listened to beautiful music in your car. It's not based on what you put in the offering plate. It's not based on whether or not you dressed up a certain way or didn't. It's not, just, it's not based on your participation in a morning and an evening and a Wednesday. Even though that would be ideal. I grew up that way. The door was open, you're there, right? Some of you know that story. That doesn't save you. Christ Jesus saves you. That's it. The love of God is based on Him. Now, if that somewhat diminishes your ego, I'm okay with that. Because he didn't say, Maya, you adorable, I'm going to save you. He didn't say, you're so intelligent, I need you on my team. He didn't say, you're so gifted, I've got to have you in my church. He said, Jesus died for you, so I'll save you, sinner. That's what we have. He loves us because of His Son. Because of His Son. See, that's the undisputable fact. The evidence that's gone on and on and on. And in case you're saying, well, how do we know it's undisputable? You know, when Peter was preaching the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter number 2, he said the most profound statement. It was so wonderful. He's preaching to the Jews. You know, they're all there. This was only a handful of weeks after Jesus had died and rose again. Now, did these people know that Jesus died and rose again? Well, they knew he died. They knew that for sure. Matter of fact, they also knew he rose again. Because Peter challenged them in the middle of that sermon. He says, if you do not think that Christ rose, I'm going to paraphrase, bring me his body. You know where the tomb is. He says, you know where David's tomb is. You can pull David out any time. Bring me the body of Christ. Now, read Acts 2 and say, where's that? It's, that's his logic. That's what he says. We know this David. He died. His tomb is still with us. But Christ, he's risen from the dead. No one argued the point. And you know, of all the people there, especially those who could not argue the point, was the religious leaders. They knew it so well, they bribed the guards to keep quiet about it. Because they knew it was true. That's the undisputable fact, you see. The evidence is there. So, set down these two things, first of all. In verse number 34, the first two things, they are finished, they are complete, they don't need to be repeated at all, because they're done as far as God is concerned. Jesus Christ died, Jesus Christ rose again. All of your faith, all of your future rests on those two words. Right there. You say, oh, wow, okay, but let's keep going, because there's two more words that are present tense. Things going on right now. What do you think Jesus did when he went up to heaven? Retire? Listen to it. 
First it says, he's at the right hand of the Father. He is at the right hand of the Father. Now he was. He is at the right hand of the Father. If we had time, or I wish we did, I'll just hand you a bunch of verses. You can look them up, all right? You'll see every single one of them make the same comment about Jesus. Luke twenty two sixty nine, Acts two thirty three. That's in that sermon. You should read that. Acts five thirty one, Ephesians one verse twenty, Colossians three verse one, Hebrews one verse three. Hebrews 1, verse 13. Keep going. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Here's another. Hebrews 10, verse 12. Here's another. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Then Peter chimes in. First Peter three twenty-two. Now, that's a handful of verses. We could dig out more if you want. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father. There's a symbol in the concept of being at the right hand of the Father for honor, for power, for authority, his reward for fully accomplishing the work the Father gave him to do. But this is where I'd like to sum this up, if it makes sense to you, I hope so. God the Father recognizes what his Son has done. He recognizes he is, it was so completely fulfilling in all that the Father asked him to do that the Father had him sit beside him in perfect fellowship. Perfect fellowship. And now you have the Father and the Son side by side. And I think of it this way. If salvation was accomplished only by one member of the Trinity, that would be quite powerful, you know? After all, that's God, right? But the reality is, all three members of the Trinity brought about your salvation. The Father planned it, if we want to simplify things. It was the Father's will, the Father planned it, and the Son purchased it, right? He did the work that brought it about. The Spirit... I'm going to have to match P's for a minute. Since the Father planned the Son purchase, the Spirit personalized it. What did He do? He's the one who opened our eyes to it. He is the one who opened our hearts to it. He's the one who brought us understanding. He's the one who caused us to believe. And then He sealed us there when we did. He made it a personal thing. And not a, just a simply a doctrinal thing. But if only one member of the Trinity saved you, that's pretty impressive. But when all of them work in unity, all of them work to bring about what has been done for you, how can you ever doubt the transaction that God has accomplished? How can you doubt it, folks? If Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, with all the authority, with all the honor, with all the power... Every accusation, every condemnation has to make its final stand before that throne. It has to. And when it goes up there to make that statement, that accusation against you, that condemnation against you, it has to stand before the Savior who paid for it. Because that's where he's seated. 
that has to make its case before Him. Beautiful song I love called My Hope is in the Lord. We sing it every now and then. My hope is in the Lord who gave Himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. The chorus says, For me He died, for me He lives, and everlasting life and light He freely gives. And then my favorite part of the verse goes this way. And now for me he stands before the Father's throne. He shows his wounded hands and names before his own. Underscore this. Present tense. Right now he is at the Father's right hand. Right now. See, every now and then you can come by the church office and you might see a sign hanging on the glass door at my office that says, I've gone to lunch. Or I've gone to the mailbox. It's on either side. It depends on where I went. I flip it over. But every time sin's accusations, sin's condemnations come before the Father, Jesus is always there. He is always there. He will never leave that place so that sin finds its way to get the accusation through. It can't be done, folks. It can't be done. Because if security was based on you or based on me, we've got some problems. You know that anyway. But we also sleep, don't we? Sometimes we sleep. Sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we just trip up. We know we make a mess of a day. And Satan, like a lion, seeks someone to devour. You know, lions are pretty clever. They wait for the right opportunity. And they seize their breakfast. But your Savior is always there. He's at the right hand of the Father. Even Satan's accusations have no place to go. It says he accuses the brethren day and night, but Jesus stands there the whole time. Do you see how beautiful that is? Do, do you know what that means for you? That Jesus is there right now, representing what he's done for you, right next to his Father. So who can condemn, folks? Who can condemn? If you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. None. Because Jesus is sitting there. Now, that's only half of the story. You see the rest of it? This is where it gets very humbling. Are you ready for this? He's doing far more than just sitting there. He's interceding for you. Rest of verse 34. He's interceding for you. Right now, he is interceding for you. He's always interceding for you. He's continually interceding for you. Have you ever had anyone think of you that much before? He intercedes for you constantly. The word is really quite an interesting word. And if I, if I could work it all out, I'm not going to go through all the technicalities of this Greek word. But this is what it comes down to. The word means to hit the mark. Like if you throw a javelin or you shoot an arrow and you hit the bullseye every time. That's the Greek word for interceding. He touches the right spot every time. How many times have you prayed for somebody but you didn't know how to pray for them? 
Jesus knows exactly how to pray for you every single time. And he hits the mark every single time. That's powerful to me. It also means he's become the master of it. That's also the idea of interceding, which is an interesting part of the definition of the word. He, he has reached it. He has obtained it. He has got the master of it. All those accusations, he's the master. All those accusations, all that condemnation, he's the master. Jesus said this once to his father in prayer. He says, I know that you always hear me. Think about that. Jesus doesn't pray carelessly. Jesus does not pray in a haphazard way. Jesus doesn't pray ignorantly. His prayers are intentional, they're accurate, and they are based on great love for you. Aren't you glad he intercedes for you? He's doing it right now. That's what it says. He is interceding for you right now. Honestly, folks, that, that humbles me. How could he love somebody like us that much? That it occupies his every moment to be praying on behalf of his own. Oh, how he loves them. Oh, he loves you. Here's a favorite verse of mine. It's in Hebrews 7. You've got to see it. Hebrews chapter 7. The New American Standard uses a word just slightly different from the King James, I know. But in verse number 25, I like the power of what it says. Hebrews 7.25. And before I even read it to you, are you sure you're secure in God's love? Are you sure of that? After you read this verse, you will never be the same. Therefore, Hebrews 7.25, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Do you see what that just said? The only way you can be insecure and lose your salvation or lose God's love for you is if Jesus fails. How likely is that? Not going to happen. Really, there's not nothing else to add to this point, folks. Your security is not based on you. It's on the finished work of Christ as your Savior and His present work as your intercessor. If He fails, you have no hope. But since these are facts I gave to you this morning, it just concretes in my mind, in my heart, and this is what brought me to everything I, I could share with you on a Sunday morning, week after week after week, and I've done it now for 44 times out of this passage alone. You are secure in the love of God. You are secure in the love of God. Hmm. Heavenly Father, we need this. Why do we need this? We live in, in a world like ours. We struggle as we do. 
And yet your word remains true, and I'm so glad it does. Your work on our behalf is solid, just as solid as the very act of dying and rising again. You have done this for us. The very fact that you, our Savior, stand with your Father right there at the throne, and you intercede on our behalf. How powerful that is. Oh, we're so thankful for these words today. What an answer to the question. Who can possibly bring a charge against God's elect? When it's God who justifies and the Son who saves. Thank you for those answers. Help us to grasp them. Help us to live. Not just know them, but live them from day to day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.